Hello and welcome to the IFS Zooms In. I'm Paul Johnson, Director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies. In the last few weeks and months, we've heard lots of calls to reform or even abolish inheritance tax. Now, that's a dog that didn't bark in the autumn statement, but it is nevertheless a tax that is in need of reform. It's also pretty unpopular, arguably the UK's most unpopular tax. A recent YouGov poll found that just 20% of people thought inheritance tax was fair. So today we'll be discussing inheritance tax, what it is, what the problems are, should it be fixed, should it be abolished? And joining me today are David Storick, who's a senior economist here at the IFS, and Aaron Advani, who is both a research fellow at IFS and an associate professor at the University of Warwick. And David and Arun have written plenty on inheritance tax, including a big report which was published a couple of months ago on the IFS website. So there's lots written, lots said, lots talked about inheritance tax, but why don't we just start with a brief description of what it is. Just just tell us about the structure of inheritance tax. How big is the allowance? What's the rate? That sort of thing. So inheritance tax is in principle, on the face of it, quite a straightforward tax. So it's levies on wealth that's transferred uh, and passed on after you die. Now, everyone can pass on up to £325,000 tax-free. You also can pass on an additional £175,000 if you're passing on housing wealth to your children. So together, that's half a million. And in couples, there's no inheritance tax paid on what you pass on to your surviving partner. And if you yourself don't pass on wealth to others when you die, you can also pass on the unused allowances to your spouse. So effectively, for those who are passing on a house to their kids, then they can pass on £1 million inheritance tax free. Above that effective £1 million threshold, there's then a 40% tax rate that is applied to all wealth with some exemptions that we'll probably come on to talk about. Now, because of that quite high exemption threshold of effectively a million pounds, what that means is quite a small proportion of estates end up paying that tax. So in the most recent data that we have from the HMRC, about 4% of deaths resulted in inheritance tax being paid. That's likely creeping up slightly at the moment and, and gonna increase in future, but That's the sort of scale that we're talking about. And as a result, inheritance tax overall, it's a relatively small tax in the grand scheme of the government's revenues. It brings in about £7 billion a year at the moment. That's less than 1% of everything the government spends. So while it's one that we hear a lot about, at the moment anyway, it's a relatively small beer in fiscal terms. Something, though, that clearly worries some people. It may come as a surprise to some listeners, if they happen to own a house in London or the South East, that something with a effectively a million pound threshold has so few people paying it. But of course, that's because most people don't own houses or have wealth that's uh, worth more than a million pounds, even if you add that and their spouse's wealth together. It's also worth, I was going to say, it's worth reminding people that even when they think, oh, I've got a million, you know, maybe you live in a house with your spouse and you have a million, a house that's worth more than a million pounds. Maybe you've even paid off your mortgage. And so you think, okay, we have, we own that outright. By the time you actually get to death, there's a good chance that you will have had to borrow out of that house to pay for care and other things. And so there's also a lot of people who think they'll pay the tax, 
but actually by the time they get to the point that they're passing things on, don't have that full value anymore. I think that's one of the things that creates that misperception where people think they have assets above the threshold when they're 60 and think, oh, maybe I'll have this to pass on. And that's not what they'll have when they actually get to the end of their life. Yeah, which is a good thing, actually. Many of us might not necessarily want to have a large amount of wealth at the point we die. We might want to to have enjoyed ourselves, for example, in the meantime <laughs> and spent it. Or, um, or of course, you can also, this is one of the problems in the sense of the tax, you can also just give it away while you're alive. And if you do that more than seven years before you die, there's just no tax at all. That's right. And I, I'm, we do know that pe- people do pass on wealth throughout their lives each year. What they're passing on is about a fifth on average of everything that's passed on as inheritances. And so while there is this provision to try and stop you getting around inheritance tax by giving some wealth when you think, okay, I'm, I'm about to die, so maybe I'll try and avoid inheritance tax, that will still count towards your estate and your inheritance tax bill over, the, over that seven-year period. If you're able to, over the course of your life, transfer wealth, then then that's generally not going to be covered by the tax system. And of course, that's one of the reasons, or one of the many reasons we'll come on to why very wealthy people often don't pay as much tax as you'd expect, because if you've got lots of money in the bank as well as your house, then you can give some of that away. But if all you've got is your house, which is the case for a lot of people where their wealth is, much harder to give that away bit by bit whilst you're still alive. So Arun, We've got this basic sense of inheritance tax. It's charged at 40% in principle above, depending on how you count it, half a million or a million a million pounds. It raises reasonably handy sum, but not actually terribly much. What's your sense of what it's there for? What's it trying to achieve? Why have we ended up where we are? So we've ended up with the modern inheritance tax over something that kind of got built about 125 years ago when we created estate duty. And estate duty was there because people looked at rising concentration of wealth among a small group and said, it shouldn't be possible just to be able to pass that on indefinitely, generation to generation. You could look at these sort of great families, landed families with titles and so on, and thought that shouldn't be a thing that just exists in a meritocratic society. Some of that should be wealth that's shared out. And so we created estate duty you know, in the late 1800s uh, to try to achieve that. That's been reformed a couple of times. It got turned into something called capital transfer tax, and then into what we have now since the Uh, mid-1980s, the modern uh, inheritance tax. And that tax still sort of exists with the overall goal of trying to limit somewhat the amount of uh, wealth that's passed generation to generation among the wealthiest, in the hope that that will try to be good for social mobility by equalising somewhat the opportunities that different people have. As we'll come on to, there's it's in many ways not terribly effective at doing that. But there was a time, wasn't there, when estate duty really did result in the breakup of some of these big fortunes and the some of the landed gentry actually felt the impact of it in a way that perhaps they don't today. Mm, if you read kind of books from the 1930s or, or are interested in watching those TV shows that, that dramatise that period, it, it's a classic trope of these kind of great families falling on hard times because the patriarch of the family has died and an estate duty is paid. And one of the reasons it's even just when the patriarch dies is because estate duty didn't allow unlimited transfers of assets, even to spouses. It allowed some amount of transfer to a spouse, but it said there's an amount you can transfer. And beyond that, actually, even that is a, is a taxable event. And so that meant that there was some process by which among the very wealthiest, that wealth was being reduced and went into the kind of general government coffers that could be spent on social programs that benefited everybody. We then moved away from doing that. We moved to this sort of capital transfer tax that tried to solve one problem, which was to solve the problem of people making gifts much earlier in their life. So actually a state duty back in the late 1800s is where this seven-year rule came in that said, if you make gifts in the last seven years of your life, those are all included as effectively things you gave on death. Anything before that was outside. Capital transfer tax created in 1975 
tried to change that and said, actually, all transfers of wealth are included. And then we moved back in, in the mid 80s, in 1986, to going back to saying, actually, we'll just have the seven year rule because the government decided that was more in line with what they were trying to achieve at the time. We might come back to this a bit, but was capital transfer tax got rid of because it didn't work, because it was unpopular? What Did, did something go wrong with capital transfer tax? Because in principle, it sounds more sensible. You want to tax, doesn't you don't necessarily only want to tax transfers on death. No, I think there's a lot to be said for capital transfer tax. It's a design that I'd probably be inclined to move back towards because as we're touching on, gifts are actually one of the most tricky areas in inheritance tax. Some of the really consequential transfers happen much more than seven years before. One of the issues is you have to keep those records. That's easier now that most big funds transfers would now be very obviously electronic between bank accounts. And so that's actually much easier to do. This was 40 years ago when this was being got rid of, 50 years ago when it was created. And I think there was just a sense that it was quite complicated to operate at a time that all that record keeping wasn't easy to do because ultimately you are somewhat relying on actually having a record of those transfers if you're going to tax them. And that, that does make it harder to operate because gifts are always, if, I, if, if all I'm giving to my kids is bags of cash that I can pass over to them, <laughs> no one's ever going to find that. You know, how, how are we going to pick that up? But the thing is that practically that's not really how these big transfers are not going to be made in that way. Uh, and so I think that's why it's actually more operable now if we wanted to do it than it was at the time. Okay, we might come back to that. But if you want to hand me a paper bag stuffed with notes, <laughs> do feel free. D- David, obviously inheritance tax matters more when there's more wealth around, when more is being bequested. And Arun has just talked a bit about history, that in the 1930s and so on, some of these biggest states were broken up. What's happened to wealth, and in particular, the passing on of wealth over the last few decades? Since around the 1970s, 1980s, we've seen some really big changes across the advanced economies, also in the UK, where wealth has grown much more rapidly than people's incomes in the last kind of 20, 30 years. More well, than... Partly because incomes haven't grown. That's one thing. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we've also seen a bidding up of, of asset prices. We're all familiar with the big growth in house prices, which has led to all sorts of issues of its own. And we've seen a kind of a doubling, basically, in household wealth compared to incomes. So prices going up, but also some of that wealth moving from the public sphere to the private sphere through things like right to buy. It's worth just pausing on yeah. that. When, when we talk about house value to earnings ratios, for yeah. example, that I can't remember what the numbers are, but the average house price is much bigger relative to average earnings than it was in the past. We often think about that in terms of the difficulty of young people getting on the housing ladder, but it's exactly part of it, what you're just saying, which is that uh, relative to money coming in, relative to our incomes, the value of the assets, if you own them, are much higher than they used to be. Yeah, that's right. So, uh, and effectively, that gives you options, gives you choices as someone who owns those assets. You might not feel necessarily much wealthier if you're still living in the same house that's gone up in value uh, on paper, but it gives you the option to, to sell that or hold it and pass it on to your kids when you pass away. And that could be very important for them if you compare someone who receives a house from their parents versus someone who doesn't. So what's happened as wealth has increased in this way is that the value of wealth passing on death has also increased and also increased more rapidly than people's incomes. And not only are people tending to leave larger amounts, but they've also been having fewer kids over time. And so that that wealth, which at least for most people is shared between their children, amounts to a larger amount per child 
Yeah, my kid, my my older two are uh, cursing me for having twins <laughs> as as number three and four. <laughs> and uh, so yeah, if if you're lucky and you have uh, you're, you're an only child, <laughs> then you might get everything from your parents. So that by itself would be expected to increase the size of inheritances by about a quarter. Then, as you mentioned, people's incomes aren't growing very quickly as well. So if you compare the amounts that are being received to what people are getting from earnings from work, inheritances are becoming much larger compared to those those other sources of income. And of course, very unequal. I was very struck by one of the charts in something you published very recently showing that for people with the poorest fifth of parents, they're essentially going to inherit nothing. But people born in the 1980s with the richest fifth of parents, their inheritance will make up sort of one pound in every three that they earn throughout their whole life. Yeah. So for each three pounds that you get going out to work, we estimate you get one pound in inheritance if you're the person who's lucky enough to have parents in that richest fifth. So you'll be inheriting on average something around £400,000. At the other end of the spectrum, there's a group of people who don't own their own home. They don't really have savings to speak of. You're not going to be receiving much from them. And so as these inheritances are also getting bigger, then it just matters more where you are in terms of having rich parents versus poor parents. That's a big shift in terms of what it is that's shaping your economic resources and all that means that you can do in terms of your living standards and so on. As inheritances get bigger, who your parents are is more important for how well you're going to be. Choose your parents well, I think, is the, uh, is, is, is the moral of, uh, of that. And I mean, the way you put that, it's becoming more important how much you inherit. There's a huge amount of inequality in what you inherit. What you inherit's got nothing to do with your own efforts. I mean, Arun, this seems like an obvious place for 100% tax. This just doesn't seem at all fair. I mean, possibly say that because I haven't inherited much, but um, <laughs> it really does. At, at, at that level, the way the way that David has described it, this seems very anti-meritocratic, as you were uh, talking about earlier, really not very fair, increasingly unequal. Why is inheritance tax unpopular? You'd think people would be clamouring for more of it. I think there's two things to remember there. So one is because perceptions of how many people will pay it are much larger than the number of people that will actually pay it, I think that does influence people's perception of whether it's a, a fair thing. If they feel like they're going to pay it and they feel like they've worked hard all this time to, to put that money aside for their kids, then they feel like that's quite unfair. They feel like they should be able to provide for their children during their life and also on their death. And so I think that that is a, a big part of it. It's just that idea that you want to be able to provide for your children, which is a totally reasonable, natural parental instinct to do that. That's one thing that kind of pushes against it. I think the other thing that you see in terms of the discussion around fairness is, we'll probably should spend a bit of time talking about this, is that the design of inheritance tax at the moment is something that means that actually the very wealthiest pay lower rates than people who are quite wealthy. So people who are at, say, two million pounds of wealth, more inheritance tax will be paid as a percentage of that wealth on their death than someone who's at, say, 10 million. And so that kind of feature means that People also look at it and say, it's not fair that I might have to pay that and someone who's much wealthier can just avoid it. So I think that also goes into that perception that this isn't a really well-designed tax. One other thing just to say is, why not just have 100% tax, even regardless of people's preferences? It's worth saying there are always trade-offs in these things. And in a world in which we realistically actually were to ever somehow, under a dictatorship, implement 100% inheritance tax, clearly what you would see is that people would behave very differently in terms of the way that they used their money, spent their money, what they transferred to their children. So you'd end up with a lot of other effects that would come through doing something like that, that obviously is 
one of the reasons you you have to think about a balance in these things it's not just about fairness it's also about efficiency and, and the behaviors that it leads to yeah you're right people do find this very unfair i think my favorite motto in all of taxation is an american one against estate duty over there which is no taxation without respiration which i think is a great call to arms but let's talk about some of these exemptions and so on david earlier described inheritance tax in very straightforward terms there's an allowance above the allowance you pay 40 percent tax that's it of course it's not quite that simple is it no, there's quite a lot of things. I think there's some, some really big ones that we should talk about, but I just want to give you my favourite one first, which is around gifts, which we've already touched on about the fact that actually if you give gifts more than seven years before you die, you can pass them on entirely tax-free. But it's actually much more complicated than that. And we're not going to go into all of these details, but I think the analogy I like here is you talked a couple of weeks ago about VAT and the VAT on biscuits and why Jaffa cakes are treated at a separate rate. The equivalent for inheritance tax is much more complicated because inheritance tax for gifts can depend on who you're giving it to how much you're giving, how much you've given in the past, what type of thing was given, and so on. It's more like having a VAT on the biscuit, or different if it's a Jaffa cake, but it also depends on your relationship with the shop, and how many biscuits you bought that year, and how many you bought over the last seven years, and if you spent more than £250 on that shop, and if you bought it on behalf of a charity, and if there was a sale run by the shop on the Jaffa cakes in the last few years. There's all of these things that go into just deciding what's a tax on a gift. It's just so mind-bogglingly crazy that you realise we should be starting again somehow. This cannot possibly be the sensible way to tax gifts. So there's a big picture question of like, how far back should we go? But there's all the fact that the way this system is designed means it's a complete dog's dinner as you try to figure out how do you even work out what you should be paying? It's really a complete mess. And gifts are really one of those hardest things within inheritance tax because you need to draw a line somewhere. But the lines we've ended up drawing are all over the place and very messy. The need to draw a line is because at some point we can't possibly say that when I have my one-year-old child the fact that I bought dinner for them or you know, bought milk powder for them is going to be something that's included. So clearly we're going to say something is not covered. But somehow we also have to say, if I suddenly buy lots of gold plates that I feed them off and let them keep the plates afterwards, that must be included, surely, because we can't be using that as a way of transferring very valuable assets to them. And so you do have to draw a line somewhere. But the way we've done it is a really completely messy way. So just tell us something about what are these crazinesses about how gifts are, are taxed? There's, there's something about which I have confess I know absolutely nothing. Well, I mean, there's the sort of the big picture principle thing, which is just we only tax stuff that happened in the last seven years. We don't care about stuff outside of that. But actually, the way it's taxed depends on so many other characteristics. So it depends on who you gave it to. For example, you give it to your spouse, that's outside. It depends how much the value of that gift was. If it was under £250, you have a certain allowance that you're allowed to give. It depends when you gave it. There's a kind of amount that depends on that year and also amount that depends on the last seven years. It depends on actually how the person died. There's a special category if they died in war depends on what the asset is, if it was a war medal or if it was business property, those things are outside. It depends on accumulating those gifts over time. It depends on where the money for the gift came from. So if it comes from certain sources, if it's normal out of income. So if you're well off enough that you have a high income and so you're regularly giving a chunk of that income away, that's actually outside the tax. Uh, and so what? For, uh, exactly. <laughs> There's a special allowance for rich people. <laughs> it's a special allowance. If you have a high enough income every year and you can just give out normal out of that income, if you can afford to regularly give away large chunks of your income, then that's outside of it. It doesn't matter that it's a gift. It doesn't matter if it was given last year, as long as you were doing it regularly. So you have to have done it for a few years. It's hard to do it just in one year and say that would have been normal. But as long as you've been doing it for a few years, which if you have high enough income, you certainly could do, uh, that's just entirely outside. And there's more. It's just, it sort of keeps going on. The list is incredibly long. And so it's really hard to understand how we've ended up here with gifts. But it's one of the reasons why that's an area that definitely needs looking at. We need to look at it properly and think out what the principles are. We certainly want to go back more than seven years because otherwise you have this kind of craziness that some of the really consequential gifts in life are just completely outside the system. But we also can't possibly need this crazy number of criteria 
uh, in the way that we think about gifts because it makes it very hard for even people who are trying not to do anything very complicated for tax purposes to actually work out what they're supposed to be accounting for and how they're supposed to account for it. Oh, well, I suppose on the upside, there's lots of tax lawyers and tax accountants who make a good <laughs> living out of this. Got to look out for them. Yeah, I think that that is the only upside of the current system. <laughs> <laughs> so Arun has <laughs> taken us around a description of some of the problems around gifts before death. But if you, what about assets when you bequeath them? They're by no means treated all the same, are they? Depending on whether they're agricultural land or business shares or, or what have you. Yeah, that's right. So the, there's a few kind of big special carve outs, if you want to call it that, for certain types of assets. First of all, if you're passing on uh, a business or shares in the business, if it's business where you are the kind of majority stakeholder, that's going to be tax free. But actually, it's not the case that this kind of only extends to what you might think of as a, a small family business or a sole trader kind of passing on to their kids. There are actually certain types of shares, which you can pass on inheritance tax-free, so-called AIM shares. And in that case, uh, although they're not listed on the regular London Stock Exchange, they are listed on a different stock exchange. And effectively, your relationship to that business is similar to more standard shares. It's completely kind of arm's length. And if you are wanting to try and get around inheritance tax, as some people do, then as long as you have held those shares for more than two years before you die, you can pass them on without there being any inheritance tax liable there. So if you've got a bunch of cash, you want to avoid inheritance tax, you just take that cash, you buy shares on the AIM market, live for two years, no inheritance tax. That's right. And Mad, isn't it? To me, it seems so. I mean, as, <laughs> as well as being you could, quite unfair between those who have the means and the kind of financial nice to go out and do that, it also you know, introduces very odd incentives about uh, what you should do with your money. So normally, we think we want to try and have people choosing where to put their money based on what's going to be increasing the productive capacity of the economy, where do we need more financing for new businesses that are going to be good for growth. Instead, you're going to be getting investments that are shaped by trying to fit into the certain requirements that you need to meet in order to... Well, you go um, and buy some farmland. That's another option. Yeah. So you go and buy some farmland, agricultural relief. Again, as long as you've held it for uh, a few years, you can pass that on tax free. And that, if you think about it, is going to bid up the price of farmland, mean that maybe someone who is a very productive farmer who wants to expand their business will be discouraged from doing so because someone else wants to use it as an inheritance tax vehicle. There's consequences, not just for the government finances, which are also substantial, and not just for fairness between different people, but also for how we're organising our economy. And we're trying to do what we can to increase productive investment in the UK. Here's a tax which is really distorting incentives about how to use your wealth and steering it away from what might be a better use of that wealth. And you might think that there's a case for exempting closely held businesses and farms because you might not want to break them up. But actually, we're even ignoring this absurdity about the AIM shares, Aaron. We're, we're actually more generous than most other countries here, aren't we? Other countries that have these sorts of taxes don't offer unlimited 100% relief. No, I think we're quite unusual in the fact that when we have some of the reliefs we have, they really are just unlimited. So other countries, when they have exemptions for spouses, when they have exemptions for AIM businesses, when they have exemptions for agricultural land, not all countries even have those, but where they have them, they exempt them up to some limit and say, okay, here's an amount that we think of as a small business. If that's what you want to not break up, you can pass that on. But beyond that, we will tax some of the additional value. 
as we have in the UK, you can have the option of saying, and you can pay that over a period of time. You don't have to make that all payable upfront. You can say 40% upfront on the value of a business over a threshold might be too large to pay upfront. That is a reasonable thing to say. But maybe since this is supposed to be a productive business, you pay 4% a year over 10 years and something like that's more viable. And it's still only on the bit above whatever threshold you would set. So you'd still have, say, for example, we looked at an example where you set, say, half a million pounds per person. So a couple, again, gets another million pounds on top of the million they have uh, for a small business. And that would raise most of the same money as you'd get from completely scrapping the policy. It would allow the kind of really small businesses uh, to stay out. Even a business that's a bit above that would only pay tax on the, the additional bit above that million pounds. But that would be a way in which you would be able to perhaps balance these trade-offs between if there is a goal to try to preserve and protect small businesses, allow them to survive while still not having potentially a business that's worth billions of pounds that could currently, if it's owned by one person or majority owned by one person and controlled by one person, be able to be passed on entirely tax-free, which seems pretty mad. So this is among the reasons that the average rate of inheritance tax on really big estates is a lot less than the average rate on a two million pound estate, which is still pretty big, but there are plenty of people in the southeast with houses and a bit of wealth who pay tax on that. But if you've got 10 million or more, then you're paying less tax because of all of these release and allowances. And that's before even thinking about how much might have been given away during lifetime. Yeah, both what's given away and even what's been put into trust, because that's not also not included in the stats. So without getting into the details of trust, so a way in which you can still you give away the assets, not give complete control to whoever you're giving them to. So they're still partly managed for that person, but it's outside of your inheritance tax estate. And you can do something like that and not have to pay inheritance tax on it as long as you make the gift at the right time and make sure you give the right kinds of assets. So buy AIM shares, hold on to them for two years, then put them into a trust. That means you don't pay an entry charge into the trust. Supposedly trusts pay a tax every 10 years. That's a small amount to make up for the fact there's no equivalent to a trust dying. But if the trust every 10 years happens to still be holding AIM shares at that point, then that means the trust is still not paying the inheritance tax. So it can go on indefinitely outside of the tax net. So I suppose the question arises as to why. You know, it's These things have existed for ages. We, I think we three at least, we three wise people, you think this is a bit crackers. Uh, why, why no reform? I mean, there's been really no serious reform of this in decades. Like with, me, with many things, when you're trying to make these sorts of reforms then there's going to be there's going to be losers and and there'll be rich losers uh, they're gonna they're relatively well off i mean yeah uh, on on that business assets point it's important to just bear in mind that you know the vast majority i think more than 90 percent of the business wealth that we think was passed on by estates more than two million pounds is really people at the upper end and there are industries that are sprung up to take advantage of these special tax treatments and those industries are going to make vocal opposition to any reforms that would uh, make their business proposition not viable anymore. There are these interests. I don't know if there are, are sort of other reasons in addition that um, Aaron knows about why uh, that there's pushing against that. I suppose in the case of agricultural land, and then of course, that's going to be a particularly visceral uh, issue for, in some cases, the people who might not see themselves so wealthy who do own farms. But again, as we've discussed, there are types of reforms that you could do where you could perhaps not abolish, but put in a limit to this sorts of exemption. Part of it is that those second round effects are sometimes harder to see. So as David said, if you were to remove some of the like, complete exemption on agricultural land, one thing that would ultimately do is to bring down the value of that agricultural land, which would help farmers who are genuinely wanting to farm, they could expand more easily. But the upfront thing is it just looks like a tax on farming. And you will inevitably have certain newspapers come out and say, whichever government it is that's proposing this is just trying to kill off British farming. And you'll have an example of somebody who's very unhappy about the situation who will be on in the news and those kind of things really matter you know it's, it's pretty emotive stuff 
it's as we said at the top inheritance tax is very emotive because it's about the ability to pass assets to your children or whoever else you want to and that feels like a natural instinctive thing to want to do even though the flip side of me being able to make sure that all my assets go to my children is that someone who didn't have a parent who had as much money will end up with fewer assets and i think it's hard to see that those two things at the same time and realize that actually it could potentially be something that people would be happy if they understood that they'd also get the benefit of yeah. this, these assets being shared out for everybody. Yeah. The trouble is you can see the losers very easily and they can Much see who they are. So if you you happen to own farmland and its value goes down, you're a loser, you're very easily identified. The fact that this is good for the economy, uh, for the productive use of resources, and in the end, if you're a productive farmer and want to expand, as David was saying, it, it will be a good thing if, if, if the value went down to its market value rather than the level that is pushed up by this um, unnecessarily generous tax treatment. Yeah, that's right. And I suppose if by increasing revenues in one place, you're able to cut taxes in another, say, or income tax or something, then that is a trade-off that can be made. And again, it's maybe not one that's going to be so obvious. If you're a loser, you experience that tax rise. In general, people are not maybe going to notice as much what would be a fairly modest reduction in taxes that affect a much wider group of people. So that, that there's maybe that issue too. In a sense, if you're looking at reforming inheritance tax, it looks like the reforms I think we're all pushing towards look fairly obvious, which is to get rid of some of these reliefs. Would that be a reasonable thing? And you could do that in a cost-neutral way. You could cut the rate at the same time. So you weren't getting any more money from inheritance tax if you didn't want to. You'd just be spreading the burden a bit more, in our view, I think, fairly. That's right. We think that if you were to bring business and ag- agricultural assets into the scope of inheritance tax, you'd raise something around a billion and a half in revenues. We also haven't mentioned the fact that pension pots are not in there, but oh, that, that's, <laughs> that's one which maybe not so important now, will be more important in the future. It's ludicrous. The way we tax pensions means they're much better as an inheritance tax avoidance mechanism than they are as a pension. That's right. And if you've got quite a lot of money in your pension and you're getting financial advice, then you'll probably be told, don't touch it as your retirement income, spend other things first. And it's of, mad. And of course, there's no lifetime allowance now. So this is essentially an uncapped uh, yeah. vehicle for doing yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. Um, you can put so as much in. Yeah. A yeah. big change in, in, in just a few years. But yeah, if you were to make some of these reforms that we think are, are broadly sensible, then you could cut the main rate of inheritance tax by a few a few percent to the low 30s. Another thing that you could do would be to raise the threshold at which people begin to pay inheritance tax. Now, if you did what we economists might think is sensible and bring these assets into inheritance tax, but also get rid of the kind of special treatment for housing, just give everyone the same allowance, regardless of whether they're passing on a house to their kids, then you could give people more than half a million tax-free allowance, and that'd be sort of universal across across everyone. So it's within the scope to use these revenues to announce some big changes. Another thing that you could do would be to think about using those revenues to maybe cut the rate, but not for everyone. So keep a higher rate on the biggest estates, but cut it for, say, those worth less than 2 million. And in that case, you could actually use those revenues to cut the rate to 30%. So that's something that might be more sort of headline grabbing or at least do something to take people who are with more modest estates, at least among the payers of inheritance tax, out out of paying so, so much in inheritance tax. Lots of options there, lots of things it would look sensible to do. But Aaron, what about abolishing inheritance tax? That That seems to keep raising its head as a as an issue. There are reasons that people give. Some people just don't like paying inheritance tax. 
But but another reason would be we've talked about all these allowances. We've talked about the unfairness of what we got. You talk to some lawyers and they'll say, well, you close all the loopholes you've talked about. People will just find other loopholes. Maybe it's just impossible to make this fair. It's only seven billion quid. Why don't we just abolish it? So I think one thing is that although it's only about seven billion now, it's rising fast. One of the things that we touched on already is that wealth has been rising overall. Wealth relative to income has generally been going up. And actually, a lot of the people who benefited from being around in that period where wealth was really growing fast and own those assets are still alive and kicking and going to be around for another 10, 20 years. And so over the, those, that next period, the people who are dying are wealthier than the ones who've been dying recently. We think that actually even within about 10 years, the amount of money you're going to be getting in is going to double. And so it is going to become more substantial as a source of revenue, potentially. That makes it also even more important to actually get the design of this thing right. Having distortions in the system that mess up how people are spending their wealth or storing their wealth is even more costly at a point that wealth is even larger in, in scale. So I think that's a, re- a really important thing to think about in the context of, of design or inheritance tax. The other thing about uh, abolition is this point about social mobility. It is doing very little at the moment for social mobility, but it would do even less in its absence. So just to give you a sense of scale, we, we said at the start, someone from the who is a child of the top fifth of parents receives about £400,000. Someone who's from the bottom fifth receives about £2,000. Now, that £400,000 is before inheritance tax. But because inheritance tax has all these exemptions and all these other things, and because the threshold is so high before any inheritance tax is paid, only about £40,000 of that 400000 is going to be taxed. So you go from a, 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 a kind of multiple of someone from the top fifth getting about 200 times as much to them getting about 180 times as much. So it's still pretty big, right? It's, it's still a, a big gap between what you're getting at the top to what you're getting at the bottom. And so inheritance tax in that sense isn't doing that much. If you really were interested in having an inheritance tax that was strongly aimed at social mobility, one of the things you would need to do is to really actually lower that threshold quite a lot. And that's not going to be a popular thing to do because the whole point of it would be bringing in a lot more people into the tax. But if you were interested in doing this from a social mobility perspective and trying to equalize that out, that would be part of what you'd have to do. But one more final stat I just wanted to give you, that, that kind of gap in levels of wealth that you inherit is hugely striking. But what I found even more striking when we were looking at that was just how big the gap is in the level of wealth that people have by the time they're getting to that inheritance. So those people who are in that top fifth already have many times more wealth than someone who's from the bottom fifth. Now, a big part of that is because so much of the wealth that they're going to inherit is both from the fact they got more opportunities in their life in terms of the education and the labor market outcomes, and also because a really consequential point at which wealth matters is the point when you're trying to get on the housing ladder. And at that point, it's not that your parents are particularly trying to think way in advance about uh, trying to avoid inheritance tax. It's just that if you're in your 20s and your 30s and the bank of mum and dad can help you get onto the housing ladder, then you have some chance of getting on. And if you're in your 20s and 30s and you don't have the access to the bank of mum and dad, it really can't. And so there's a really big divergence at that point on whether people start accumulating wealth. And that then 20, 30 years later uh, is really substantial at the point that they're then thinking about ending up with further receipts from their parents as their parents are dying. Yeah, it was a very striking from the things that both of you have written over the last few months. I hadn't quite appreciated was exactly what you're saying there. We often think of inheritance tax as something that helps social mobility. But as you say, it does incredibly little to do that. I mean, it remains the case that those who inherit a lot still inherit vastly more than those 
who don't, but also that by the time you're inheriting, because if you're going to inherit, you come from a better off background, you've probably therefore done better in school and the labour market and so on, and you've been helped onto the housing ladder. The inheritance bit is just one part which kind of expands again the sort of the inequity or the inequality between people from different from different backgrounds. And if we really want to tackle that, we've got to think about things right through right through the life cycle. And David in particular has done a load of work on the bank of mum and dad and, and how important that is. Yeah, that's right. It starts from it starts even from before birth, actually, how your later outcomes are shaped by your parents. But we all know that your education is really important and it shapes how much you end up earning. But what's, I think, quite interesting is that even people who earn very similar amounts, have very similar education, have really quite different trajectories in that early adulthood phase, depending on whether they're the, the children of richer or poorer parents. Yeah. Um, and we see those gaps in wealth expanding, even from your early 20s. And yeah, some of that is going to be, okay, you're getting given wealth. But it's also the knock-on consequences that it has, as Aaron is saying. So about half of what people receive in, in wealth transfers at that point is used to buy houses. That can be very important for your future wealth accumulation. But there's also, I think, something that we need to understand better is also the connection with what jobs you, you choose to do, maybe where in the country you live, are you able to access careers which are going to take you somewhere and allow you to build up wealth independent of that you're given directly. Look, we've almost certainly got another session to run on social mobility <laughs> yeah. and bank of mum and dad and, and geographic mobility and all those sorts of things. It'd be great to get into and you yeah. know, even entrepreneurship and how important um, yeah. having wealth is to get you on that route. Before before we stop, just one last thing. Another thing which I hadn't realised until I'd read your work. So please, everyone listening, do read what Aaron and David have written because it's desperately interesting. Is that a lot of other countries which have an inheritance type tax actually do something closer to what we economists for decades have been saying you should do in the UK, which is tax the person who receives it rather than tax the estate that's given. Because that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to tax the person who, who gets the money. Yeah. And in fact, I think out of the OECD, which is something around 30 countries, we're one of only four that levy this tax on the giver, on the estate, rather than on yeah. what people are receiving. Yeah, it seems very odd that we don't try and do that. Anyway, as ever, we've spent far too long talking because there's been so much of, of interest to talk about here. So thank you, Aaron. Thank you, David. Thank you to everyone who's been listening to this episode of the IFS Zooms In. Please, to see more of our work, do visit www.ifs.org.uk. And to further support us, do consider becoming a member for as little as £10 a month. You can find more in the episode description. See you next time.